Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. He became sin who knew no sin That we might become His righteousness He humbled Himself and carried the cross of so amazing of so
Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, the second chapter. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and, there were, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. You see, the season of Christmas extends for 12 days until the day of Epiphany, the visit of the wise men, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. Well, last Sunday, we spoke of the angel Gabriel and his visits to Daniel, Zechariah, and Mary. And then Sunday evening, we told the Christmas story from the prophecies of Isaiah up through the birth of Jesus and the Apostle John's declaration that Jesus was the living Word of God, as John writes in chapter 1 of his Gospel. And we spoke of the meaning of Christmas. All of these are available on the Cedar Grove Facebook pages to listen to or watch or read. Today we're going to look into a lesser-known passage from the time of Jesus' birth. 
Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Because of this, Luke had a chance to interview several disciples and Jesus' mother, Mary, a few years after Jesus returned to heaven. In fact, the Orthodox churches of the East attribute four different icons or two-dimensional paintings of Mary to Luke. And so Luke gives us the most comprehensive account of the events around Jesus' birth. <coughs> Chapter 2 of Luke contains the traditional birth narrative and includes the visits of the angels to, and the, to the shepherds and their visits to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Bethlehem where they've traveled for a mandated census. If you want to find out how this all got started, read the book of Luke. Jesus was born. Now in verse 21, Luke tells us that on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now in Jewish law, the law of Moses also required that the mother of a newborn son was considered unclean, largely because of the blood from the birth. She was required to stay isolated for a month and then present herself to the temple for certain purification sacrifices. Since Jesus was her firstborn son, he also needed to be presented to the temple and consecrated to God. Since the parents were relatively poor, they needed to sacrifice instead of a lamb, just a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph, carrying the boy, walked the four or five miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem that day, which wasn't considered much of a walk. It was an ordinary stroll for people who were accustomed to walking almost everywhere they went. Luke tells us that in Jerusalem there was a righteous and devout man named Simeon. He was so in touch with God that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and Simeon was waiting for Israel to be rescued from the occupation of outsiders. As Luke puts it, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. For you see, Israel was a land that had been occupied by the Romans for about 50 years since the time of Julius Caesar and was ruled by a king appointed by those Romans, a king who was not Jewish by birth, Herod the Great. And in Israel, there was no concept of the separation of church and state. Everyone in Israel believed that they were just like this. No, the high priest of the temple working with a descendant of King David, the king, the historical devout king who had written many of the Psalms himself was David, the two of them were considered together to be the rightful rulers of Israel. But the Romans were usually tolerant of other religions and so they allowed the high priest to continue to rule over the temple and they were satisfied with controlling and appointing the king who ran the military which also doubled as a police force. And besides that, they had their own garrison in the fortress Antonia, which overlooked the temple courts and stored the high priest's ceremonial robes, a matter of control. Now I want you to imagine if our country were under occupation, there's the fortress Antonia right on the side of the temple courts. I want you to imagine if our country were under occupation with foreign soldiers watching every church service 
with a garrison posted near every church and our president and governors and mayors appointed by the occupying power. Imagine the feeling of oppression, of depression, especially for those of us old enough to remember our lively political campaigns and free speech. Simeon, being an older, devout man, was often in the temple and would have seen the Roman guards looking down upon the temple courts during every visit. But because the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the great Savior which would come to rescue all people. And so this day, moved once again by the Spirit, Simeon went once again into the temple courts where he ran into Joseph and Mary and the baby Messiah, Jesus. What Simeon said made quite an impression on Mary, for she was the eyewitness who told Luke about it many years later. Taking the baby in his arms, Simeon praised God and prayed to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, looking down at the child, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish people, and the glory of your people Israel. Yes, the idea of the Messiah, you see, was not just a religious revival, but it was an expression of political hope also. Simeon was now ready to die in peace. And there was an element of code words in his poem. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Maybe a great general one day, Jesus would be. Like David, who had been a mere shepherd boy before he defeated Goliath the giant. And then he says, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. And you can just see Simeon looking up with a knowing smile on his face toward those watching Roman soldiers on the tower just outside the temple courts as he shared with Mary and Joseph the idea that one day those soldiers wouldn't be there. They would be gone because of the baby in Simeon's arms. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, an awakening, a bringer of new knowledge to those non-Jews like the Romans like us, and the glory of your people Israel. Yet Simeon's words, whether they were intended as an expression of political hope or as a religious truth, they came true. For Jesus was the salvation of people, seen by all nations, new knowledge of God for those people who weren't Jewish, and a giver of glory to God's people, the people of Israel. Simeon blesses all three of them and then said to Mary words that she would always remember. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. Hopeful words, but they had an ominous, ominous ending Major political change would happen because of this child. Those who were in power would lose that power, and many who were not in power would gain power. But it would not be without cost. It would not be all a glorious and wonderful time. 
there would be heartache. For one day, Mary's soul would indeed be stricken as she stood at the foot of the cross, watching her precious son die a horrible death. And then old Anna shambled up. Anna, the daughter of Penuel from the tribe of Asher, was very old. She'd been married, probably at age 13 or 14, to her husband. They lived together seven years, and then he died. And then she had lived another 84 years. There's two, in, two ways that this passage is interpreted, and I prefer this version. She lived another 84 years after her husband died. So at the time of the meeting, Annie, Anna was 104 or 105 years old. Luke tells us that Anna lived in the temple, constantly worshiping day and night, fasting and praying. She was known as a prophet, a speaker of the words of God. And that day, just as Simeon had told Mary about the trouble to come, Anna walked up. Anna gave thanks to God, and she spoke about the child to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption, the rescue of Israel and Jerusalem. And so the word began to spread throughout Jerusalem that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. It was the truth, but it spread as a rumor. And, and people asked about it, and they told each other about it. And so a year or so later, when a group of wealthy travelers arrived from the east and asked about the Messiah, men in King Herod's court directed them to, to Bethlehem, but you know, that's a story for next week. Meanwhile, Joseph and Mary completed their rituals. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And eventually, after a side journey to Egypt for a year or so, they returned to Galilee to their home in the little village of Nazareth. Paul has a commentary on the meaning of all this in Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, in other words, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child, and since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. Paul tells us that we have begun again. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're adopted sons and daughters of God. We have been given a new heritage. And so we see that Mary and Joseph, they did what was required of them. They could have said, we don't need to do these rituals. Our son is the son of God. But no, they did what people are supposed to do. And they did these things despite being special. But according to Paul, we're all sons and daughters of God. And thus we should imitate in what we do since he's the perfect son. And our adoption into the family of God is because of the redemption Jesus gave us through his sacrifice. We're all special, but so often we think that we are so special. And so we should get a pass from the uncomfortable things that custom and tradition and the Word of God ask of us. 
And so we fight saying that we believe in God. We fight submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. We fight getting baptized. We fight formally joining a church. We fight joining a Bible study. We fight supporting a church. And the root sin behind all of this fighting against custom and tradition and the Word of God is our pride. We are special people with superior knowledge better than other people in some way. Maybe not you, but definitely us. We want someone to acknowledge that we're better. We want the fast lane. We want the first class seating. We want the deluxe accommodations. We want better treatment. Our pride leads us to arrogance. We're not going to do what we're asked to do because we're special. But Jesus asks us to be humble. Jesus tells us that while we may consider ourselves and the world may consider us to be better than other people, it's time to begin again when we come to him. For if we're so good and superior that we're a nine out of ten, while all those people around us are fours or fives, he needs us to know that on his scale, indeed even on our scale, where we're nines out of ten, Jesus is a thousand in, com in comparison. We aren't even in his league. In wisdom, in goodness, in character, in every virtue, the best of us are like ten-year-old little league baseball players compared to Jesus, who's the most valuable player in the world. And furthermore, we will never, ever, ever catch up to him and play with him on even terms. The day we finally learn to hit a 100-mile-per-hour fastball is the day he can pitch us a 200-mile-per-hour fastball or even a 1,000-mile-per-hour fastball and leave us behind in the dirt. But like the wonderful coach that he is, Jesus is standing there the day that we finally hit a 50-mile-an-hour fastball, and he's saying to us, way to go, great job, now let's try for 60 miles an hour. You see, being humble doesn't mean that we're failures. Humbleness means learning where our weaknesses are and learning to rise above those weaknesses by asking for help from Jesus, the one who can truly lift us above all those weaknesses. Humbleness can also mean learning what weaknesses we cannot rise above, and accepting that we need to find other strengths, other places to grow. You see, the humble man, as Thomas Merton said, the humble man is not afraid of failure. In fact, he's not afraid of anything, even himself, since perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God. You know, our weaknesses and our strengths change over time. There was a time when I, believe it or not, I could lift 175 pounds without any problems. Now I've got to be careful with 50 pounds. But there's also a time when I could not speak in front of 10 or 20 people without sweating and stuttering. And now I deliver 20-minute talks every week. My strengths and weaknesses have changed. And when my strengths and weaknesses have changed, I've had to begin again to make progress. I've had to begin again several times in my life. Even God chose to begin again a few times. 
He began with Adam and Eve, and they wrecked the world with their disobedience. It was one simple command, just one thing for them to avoid. Don't eat from this tree, but they disobeyed that one simple command. Generations later, people were so wicked that God sent the great flood, and God began again with Noah and his family. Later, God appeared to Moses and sent Moses to rescue Jacob's descendants from Egypt and began again with Israel, this time with a law, the series of commands that God gave to Moses. But the people began to worship the law instead of worshiping the God who made the law. And so God began still again. This time, he sent himself to earth as Jesus, a little baby who would grow to teach people what was important. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. God was humble enough to begin again, starting from scratch as a powerless little baby, despite the fact that he had created the universe. He started as a baby that grew into a man humble enough to sacrifice himself on a cross for every person here and every person around the world who chose to accept that sacrifice as a gift. Jesus the Christ, you see, was humble. He thought more of others than of himself. And his gospel is that we can begin again by following him more closely. And this is a great time of year to begin again. You know, even today, people can't follow those two simple commands of love your neighbor as yourself and love God. Instead, most people believe that they're to tell your neighbor what they're doing wrong and love yourself as your God. Now, it's time for us all to begin again. We need to remember that God is God and Jesus is God and we are not God. And when we get that through our thick skulls and put that idea deep into our hearts, then we can begin to become humble. Humble enough that we will do whatever God asks without having a special lane or an express line or a deluxe accommodation or being treated as someone special. Strive to be humble enough, particularly this year coming up. Strive to be humble enough to simply be glad that God loves you. God loves me. God loves all of us. That Jesus came to earth and chose to die in our place. And humble enough to think more often of others than of ourselves. For C.S. Lewis pointed out that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Begin again and be humble. Humble enough to be worthy of the name of Christian, which means literally, little Christ. Begin again, humbly, and become a little Christ this year. Let's pray together. Father God, creator of the universe, we confess that we have often thought more of ourselves than of others. We confess that we have been pride-filled. Help us this year to begin again. Help me to begin again. Guide me so that I will become your humble servant. Guide me that I will learn to love you and other people. Guide me so that I will bring other people to your love and to your Son. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the perfect Son of God. 
Amen. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowling would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg Campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.